Caregivers, have you ever felt like nothing is going right? Well, cheer up and welcome to Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver radio program, where you'll learn how to avoid that dreaded thing called caregiver burnout and how to survive the grieving process. Join Dave and his guests now as they share practice tips and tools that you can start using immediately to help get you through this day. Now, here's your caregiver host, Dave Nassani. From Los Angeles and New York City, a big L.A. and Big Apple, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I am Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver at CaregiverDave.com, along with my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruber, at TheCaregiverSpace.org, coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on 16 global audio and video platforms, including iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Vimeo, Stitcher Radio, Blog Talk Radio, MixCloud, Listen Notes, Blueberry, PlayerFMPodcast.com, VIP Internet Radio, Facebook Live, HealthyLife.net, and CaregiverDave.com. And we are proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and one of the top six best podcasts by Caring.com. And we have an exciting show planned for you today, don't we, Adrian? Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> there she is. Donna Thompson and Zachary White, who met each other online. <laughs> I don't think they're dating. <laughs> Dr. Zachary White is an associate professor in the James L. Knight School of Communication at Queen's University of Charlotte. He's the co-author with Donna Thompson of The Unexpected Journey of Caregiving, of Caring, I'm sorry, The Transformation from Loved One to Caregiver, Roman and Littlefield, 2019. He began living and exploring the caregiver experience in 2001 during his mother's diagnosis with brain cancer. So sorry to hear that. And Donna Thompson is a caregiver, author, and activist. She is the co-author with Zachary White of The Unexpected Journey of Caring, The Transformation of Loved One to Caregiver, and author of The Four Walls of My Freedom, Lessons I've Learned from a Life of Caregiving, Donna's son, Nicholas, has severe cerebral palsy and is medically complex. Donna also cared for her mother, who died in August of 2018 at the age of 96. She's a board director of Kids Brain Health Network and is a co-instructor of an online course in family engagement in research at McMaster University. She also teaches families how to advocate for care at the advocacy school at the Huddle at huddle.com. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. That was a mouthful for me. Um, Thank you so much. Zachary and Donna, we welcome you here. I like to ask my guests, and I will take turns here. We'll be polite. We'll start with you, Donna, ladies first. Uh, just who is Donna Thompson, and, and why was she placed on this earth? And then Zachary will ask you the same thing when she finishes. Go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is, I was born, I think, with a caregiver star, uh, under a caregiver star. I, um, I began to be a caregiver in my own family in 1973 when my father had the first of three strokes and I helped my mother to look after him. Um, he was paralyzed and lost his speech. And he died, uh, as I said, in, in 1975. Then in 1988, um, our son Nicholas was born with very severe cerebral palsy. And we ran 
what I call a home hospital for him until um, he was 23 when he moved to a nearby care home where he has 24-hour one-to-one nursing care. Um, he has a great life in spite of all of his challenges, and we're very close family, so we still see him and talk to him on a daily basis. Um, and my mom uh, was healthy and happy throughout her life, but she, of course, became frail um, as she aged. She lived to the age of 96. And at about the age of 86, I'm going to say, she received a, 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 a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So hmm. she needed... Sorry, say so that So she needed... Okay. So my mother passed away at the age of 96 last summer, um, and I'm going to say it was about when she was 86 that she received a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So um, I have looked after my family all of my life, and I've given an awful lot of time to reflecting on the meaning of my life, really, giving care. And what is it to need care? What is it to give care intensively over a period of years? And how do we value ourselves in that role? And how do we value others also in that role? Um, so I'm sure Zachary has some ideas on how he would like to answer that question too. Yes, Zachary. Should I call you Zach or Zachary? No, with Zachary Dave, that's good. Okay, so uh, why were you placed on this earth? Well, you start with the big questions, don't you? Um, I, I do. I think, <laughs> you start off strong here. I think that, um, you know, I've always been someone fascinated with how we connect with others and how we disconnect from others. You know, how our relationships and the ways in which we describe our experiences shape how we can find communion with others and how we oftentimes feel alone or disconnected. And along the way, uh, through schooling, by accident in many ways, I fell into uh, this discipline of communication and understanding uh, kind of aligning with my own interest of, of relationships, of language, and how we create particular realities. So the, way, the words that we use, the ways in which we connect with one another, and how those shape future interactions. And uh, like Donna said, my care experiences, I think, have shaped me. Um, I was in my 20s when um, I was getting my PhD at Purdue University. And um, for a month or so um, prior to arriving in January, my mother was what they thought, you know, had a sinus infection, just wasn't feeling very well. And so I was mm. kind of at that point a, a long distance caregiver, but a very, there was nothing really wrong with her or so she claimed and the doctors told her so. But a, a months of symptoms, you know, subtle and in retrospect, it may have made more sense, but um, not being able to remember certain things, um, the left side of her body feeling different than her right side, um, they decided mm. to run some more tests and it was determined that there was uh, a strong possibility that she had some type of cancer. So me and my three other siblings, I come from a large family, we flew out there and like many families uh, were faced with something that we didn't anticipate or didn't expect. But I remember gathering around her before she went in for the brain biopsy and these kind of poignant moments of life before caregiving and then life after caregiving. Um, it was determined that she didn't, did in fact have brain cancer. And I had the unique opportunity to step away from my PhD program 
in communication something that I thought would prepare me for this experience. Mm. To spend time at mm. home with my dad, who was the primary caregiver. And we went through this trajectory of diagnosis and then um, radiation treatments for eight weeks. So I was really able to take a front row seat to someone I cared so deeply about, an incredible relationship with my parents and my mother in particular, and watch that trajectory of the provider-centric world of, of, of improvement and, and rehabilitation and the hopes of um, radiation. And then all the way through into mm. the death diagnosis where I remember sitting in the doctor's office, kind of staring at the doorknob, awaiting a fate that we probably knew, but we're hoping for otherwise. And um, I remember walking out as I wheeled my mother out in her wheelchair, that that was the last doctor's appointment we would go to, the last time a doctor would want to schedule an appointment with us. Hmm. And I was mesmerized by the people that walked into our lives when everyone else walked away, including some family hmm. and friends and all those reactions. So uh, for the last 18 years, uh, Dave and Adrian, I've been exploring what happens to people and how we communicate in the most uncertain times of our lives, when we have to communicate in a culture that has no frameworks for what we are experiencing. And um, I think that's why I was put here on earth to help people understand and give a language to their experiences in a way that might guide them, not because it's prescribed, but just give them a way to understand that they may not be alone in their experiences. There are some common universals particular to our caregiving experiences. Well, you know, mm -hmm. it's interesting how you two got together, uh, first of all, and you haven't even met each other in person. This is probably <laughs> the closest you've ever gotten right here on the same screen. <laughs> but um, what was it that when you met each other, and, and I don't explain how you met each other, that, that you realized you had uh, a similar passion and then to go to the next step and say, well, let's write a book together. I mean, that just doesn't happen, does it? <laughs> it did. <laughs> um, kind of like love. It just happened. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's funny. Um I Zachary um blogs very um beautifully and poignantly on his site, the unprepared caregiver. And uh, what he was talking about um the, the 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 transformational moments that turn you from a normal relationship, daughter, son, sister, brother, wife, husband, to a caregiver, this idea of personal transformation was very fascinating to me. I come from a background of um, uh, my first book was really quite a lot of philosophy and economics about the value of people who will never be employable because of their disabilities or their chronic disease or whatever. And I did a deep dive into how um, people like my son are very valuable human beings and what the social contract with people like him and our family should be to help us support him to have a good life. So really in my heart, I am a doer. 
I am looking for, okay, so what are we going to do about this? <laughs> what are 10 things I can do today to make everything better in my family? So I'm the pragmatist. I'm the action girl. I'm, you know, basically about finding solutions in the community and navigating healthcare and all the rest. And so Zachary and I, in, in conversation, I think, and Zachary, chime in here to add or correct me if I'm getting this wrong. I think we felt that having the language to describe our caring experience could enable us to have a life story for ourselves that makes sense with caregiving in it as opposed to separate from Caregiving is not separate from our lives. Like our lives, our real lives aren't going to start suddenly magically after the person we love dies. That would be like saying, you know, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop being a parent one day. You know, we are fundamentally and permanently transformed by this role that is so complex in our family. And I am transformed absolutely by it. So I began to think that there was a connection between the language to express, the life story, changed identity, and then acting differently and finding solutions with wisdom, with the vocabulary to express our needs, to know what we need, and to be a very effective, wise caregiver. So that's sort of the the idea that we had. Um, Zachary, uh, I know you've got something to say here. No, I mean, uh, you're right on, Donna. I was moved by Donna's work at the caregiver's living room and her prodigious uh, advocacy across the care spectrum. I saw someone who was connected and connecting to people and ideas and I was so moved by that because I saw someone living in principle what I think is the ideal in terms of creating community in in online worlds. That's as close as I've gotten to Donna in terms of online worlds, but it's the it's as real and as vivid and as important and as meaningful. And as Donna said, it kind of complemented our work. I, I kind of come at it from a perspective of how the self has changed and transformed from identity-wise and relationships, but what I didn't have was what Donna really provided, which was deep thinking and understanding of how people can advocate for themselves and their families in meaningful ways, and how that advocacy can transform not just your own situation, but others' situations. And so I, we saw our work complementing one another in so many different ways, and we really had a similar goal. Our goal was to provide for caregivers what we hoped would be provided for us, meaningful, devoid of cliche, significant, start with the premise that caregivers are the experts of their own situations, and yet there mm -hmm. is a commonality to the experience that we can find something in common that will bind us together that doesn't deny our individual circumstances, that recognizes that caregiving doesn't exist in isolation, it is situated in culture, and we face similar challenges 
and we can learn and lean on each other in ways that are purposeful and meaningful. And so from that point, from that point of commonality, it has driven us all the way through. And it is kind of the center of our core. It is our, it is our North Star, I think, as we work and as we think through it. Um, and, you know, it always is nice to start with your co-author as someone you deeply respect because of her experiences mm. and the ways mm -hmm. in which she is the doer and the thinker um, in so many different ways. Yeah. Well, let's let's get down uh, to the brass. Oh, you want to say something, Adrian? I wanted to say something. The the interesting thing about being a doer, um, not a fixer, because this is no. not, caregiving is not something you can fix, and no. you've gotten that. I know you've gotten that, but not everybody does. Uh, a lot of men think. You know that they're in that mode of yeah. thinking that they can fix everything. Well, got to get over it. <laughs> Are there any yeah. female fixers out there? Do you think? Oh, I'm sure there are. Okay. <laughs> you were just making a generalization. No, men. Men. See, men. Statistically, more right. men will leave a caregiving situation right. because they can't fix it. Right. No, you're right, Adrian. And I think you know, I always joke that the quickest way to, to clear a room is to have someone crying or in a situation that you cannot fix. And typically, the uh, male's tolerance for that ambiguity right. or uncertainty is much lower, as you're talking about. And um, it is amazing. Caregivers then, you know, preemptory kind of isolate themselves from those who can't be in the company of others who, you know, our situations need not to be fixed. No one is calling out to absolve us of our situations as much as be listened right. to, to be leaned on, to provide a way forward that accounts for what we're living with rather than denying that reality. Yeah. Right. The only, the only way it's really fixed is when the one you're caring for, you know, passes on. But then a lot of times it's not fixed because the person has so engulfed their identity into being a caregiver. Now they're depressed because they don't know what to do. And uh, many of golf. Yeah, that's why Adrian has a group for after caregiving because they talk about all sorts of things. It doesn't just end like that. It's not just fixed by the, by a death, you know. So what no. what can your readers expect to learn from your book together that you wrote? I well, I hope that I hope that readers will. Read the first half of the book, which is about, um, which Zachary wrote, and it's about um, those transformational moments of who am I now that I have taken on this role? I feel like a different person. I, I don't function with my friends or my extended family in the same way anymore. And I hope that people will read that and say, Oh my gosh, this is so much of this is true for me. So mm -hmm. then I hope they ask themselves, okay, now that I understand this a little bit better, um, what do I do with this new understanding? What can, what is possible now? And what is possible in where I live, in my community, given the givens of my care situation. Um, so there's nothing prescriptive about this book. We 
we we hope that people will be able to layer on their personal circumstances and find resonance, um, validation, um, truthfulness in it, and mm-hmm. and just shift the perspective just slightly. Well, you know, I was stuck thinking that this way about my extended family or about my neighbors or about my church. And maybe there is just a little shift in the way that you're able to think about the outside world um, after uh, a reflection on this common identity shift that, that takes place. And then maybe I hope that readers would be able to act a little bit differently and more effectively and proactively uh, to ease their own burden of care. That's what I hope. But I love having this conversation to say, what did you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm interested in the title, uh, The Unexpected Journey of Care, the The Transformation from Loved One to Caregiver. How did that title come about? And and what would a prospective burned out caregiver, uh, how would they be attracted to that title to say, oh, this is just what I need? Well, we hope, you know, Donna and I hope that people see themselves in this title because no one really expects a life of caring. It is a strange thing, even though inevitably we all know we're going to be, we're, we care for people across our lives. But there are certain types of caring that are approved and encouraged, like parenting, because it's aspirational and you can anticipate a lifetime of memories and you can relive your past and you can plan in ways that situate you in ways that you would like others to see you. But when it comes to caring in the kinds of ways that we're talking about, caring that happens in the informal spaces of our lives in which our lives are interrupted in ways we could not have anticipated, and we surely don't dream about lives that are embedded or embodied in relationships. I think that's what we're after here, and that transformation from loved one to caregiver, I think is this is the kind of key point here across all of our chapters. No one walks into a caring situation without a pre-existing relationship. And right. John and I spend all of the chapters talking in some way or another about that, because that is the lens by which we see everything. When love meets care, everything changes. Mm, That makes sense. I see that, Dave, in you and Charlene all the time. I I, Mm -hmm. I see that. I mean, I know that Charlene has had her disability for a long time. 22 years. But, yeah, but I I look at the picture behind you there. I see Mm -hmm. a pre-existing relationship there. I see the love of a married couple. We had a fairy tale storybook romance for 22 years, and then (laughs) all of a sudden, can that be broken? Can that be changed? You know, uh, apparently not. We go on in the new normal because we have that foundation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, this is a good time to take a break, so we will be right back. Don't go away. Dave Nassani, The Caregiver's Caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too. Reclaim your caregiver sanity by learning when to say yes and when to say no. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first. 
but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through, because he is one. And he now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his incredible caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first, before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Reclaim your caregiver sanity by learning when to say yes and when to say no. We'll help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life, and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver. On sale everywhere and at caregiverscaregiver.com. And we're back with Zachary White and Donna Thompson and my co-host Adrian Gruberg. I'm Dave Nassani on the Caregiver Dave Show. And we're talking about the book, The Unexpected Journey of Care, The Transformation from Loved One to Caregiver. And these are the authors. And we're talking about why they wrote this book um, I wanted to ask you, why is a caregiver identity important? I mean, you know, it happens so quickly. All of a sudden, you know, I'm a gas station guy. The next day, I'm a caregiver. I didn't even know what the word meant. People told me I was a caregiver. I says, what? Um, I'm not sure when I took on that identity of caregiver because, number one, it was a negative identity. Who wants to be identified with a negative term or word like that? Uh Talk about the process of, of, I guess it's a form of denial. This isn't happening to me. This is just a speed bump. We're going to be okay. She's going to be fine. She'll get out of the hospital. We'll go back to our normal way of life. And the days turn into weeks, into months, into years, into decades. Where do we kind of uh, realize and accept what we're going through? We are a caregiver. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that. <laughs> I think you're going to say the same thing as Go me. Ahead, well, I was just going to say the first title that we really wanted for our book is I am not a caregiver with a stroke through the word not. Yeah. I and like that. I know. So did we. But the publisher didn't. They said they can't sell. Oh, the publisher. What that... do they know? I know. I know. But Zachary, take it away. No, I mean, Maybe Dave, on your second uh, printing, you might want to, right. you know, yeah. really, I, I, can, I can tell you stories about publishers and what they think, and they're not always right. To speak from experience. Um, yeah. And, and you know, your comment, Dave, is so right on in so many ways about um, one thing that caregivers universally have is most of us at some point deny the fact that we are caregivers because, as you say, who wants this title? I mean... This title doesn't open doors for people. It doesn't get you acclaim. It doesn't get you standing ovations. It doesn't get you more money. It doesn't fulfill what you thought your life was supposed to be. And so it's kind of a rational idea to feel that this kind of label, this moniker of caregiving is like a sweater that fits too tightly on a warm summer day and you feel constricted and you know it can't breathe and yet you feel trapped by it more than anything else. In large part because for too often this, the label of caregiving is defined by others and what others believe caregiving is like. And um, it 
doesn't allow people to define or see themselves as part of something else. I mean, when we go off to college or when we join a workplace, we get some type of identification with the organization. We get to wear the sweatshirt or the hat. If we go to a college, we get to root for a team. There is no such analogy when it comes to caregiving because everyone identifies with their loved one or identifies with a particular disease or condition or situation, and that is all valid. At the same time, I think we deny the commonalities that bridge us together and help us understand yeah. that this is a role and this is a relationship. And like any role and relationship, we like to have some, there are some commonalities to the experience that help us understand where we are, where we might be going, and how we might get help from other people. Mm -hmm. yeah. I just wanna yeah. add too to that, that I also think that the word caregiver it can be a threat to the relationship. I mean, when you think of spousal caregiving, um, for someone to self-declare that they are um, a caregiver, you have to be pretty okay, the two of you, and Dave, you're the expert, but you have. I think you have Supposed to be to pretty, be. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you know, you have to be pretty okay with publicly declaring to each other and to the world at large and to yourselves that dependency needs are not something bad that they that that bathing your spouse it can still be a romantic uh it doesn't eliminate the romantic life um there's but you know there are so many tasks where when you are performing care more than you're having other aspects of your relationship, more than you're having conversations with someone, um, that you're doing more care than you are other things that define your relationship. Then I think there is a tipping point there where people say, it is now time for me to use this word, which I don't like, in order to get something that I need. And it is the only word that we really have today, so. Yeah, you agree, Adrian? Oh, it, well, I think, you know, like in in England and I think in Canada, the people use the word carer rather than caregiver. And that's really what it is. You're showing care. And yeah. that's what I did. I mean, but I knew that there was a name for it. So, but I did it because I cared. You know, and what happens to it, because it happens in the home and the, in the informal spaces of life, it becomes tainted and, and loaded with all of these meanings. It becomes a shorthand for insignificance and devalued and marginalized and forgotten and untranslatable. And you're not a professional. You're not a nurse. You're not a doctor. It also trespasses across all other components of yourself, like Donna was talking about. I mean, it respects nothing. It crowds out those pre-existing relationships and threatens how you see yourself and forces you beyond what we would ever choose to start to redefine the lines of how you're going to interact with someone. Even as you know, if you, had, if you acknowledge the label of caregiving, many people believe you're also acknowledging the end of something else. And so there's mm. a, quite a bit of mourning that goes mm. with this label, but it's almost always yeah. private. 
because people on the outside don't recognize that, well, you're still a spouse, or you're still, that's still your dad, or that's still your son, or yes, and. And so what the caregivers oftentimes reconciling the same and different, the different and the same. Right. And you can't help but feel lost and confused, yeah. partly because this, this role isn't played out. It's not, it's not kind of fleshed out in the ways that we're talking about now. And there are certain mm -hmm. gifts that caregivers need to have, and not everyone has them. I mean, I'm not the perfect caregiver. I'm impatient. I'm not known for my compassion and my empathy and my sympathy. But then part of that is because I'm a man. You know, I've learned these things, but they don't come natural. It's hard work mm -hmm. to be compassionate for me and empathetic to to feel someone else's pain you know what do you say to guys like me well obviously i'm i'm doing a good job because my wife has a smile on her face and joy in her heart and and yeah. uh, you know uh, i'm we're getting along uh for a couple of years we didn't get along we almost split up because uh, you know the anger of the grief and and yeah, you know, just the you always hurt the ones you love, the lo ones you shouldn't hurt at all, and I, and you're the only one there to to get you know hit over the head with the baseball bat, the proverbial one. Um, but I'm I'm glad I hung in there because I almost didn't, but it was our vows and who I am and my integrity that kept me there, not knowing if it would ever get better, you know. But thank God it did get better, and it, in fact it got great. Hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah, you know, I I think that um, I I don't know. I talk to caregivers all the time, and I I don't know. I don't know if I've ever met a single person who hasn't had a moment where they thought anybody could do this better than me. I really need to leave now. <laughs> and. Um, I, you know, so if I you're certainly feeling that that's normal. Absolutely. Yeah. And the thing that is required of us is simply to stay and abide with and somehow get through that, um, just, you know, that, that utter hopelessness and keep breathing and that there is something on the other side of that. You don't ever know quite what it is, but, um, uh, you know, I, th I think the, the, the four of us here in this conversation have, have that in common. We've all, uh, I'm pretty sure had a moment where we thought, I cannot do this. There is literally that mm -hmm. first person I see walking down the street can do this better than me. <laughs> well, I my just dog can't. can do it. My dog can do it better than me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because, you know, you, know, you do there. It's, it's just a, we all, experience this hopelessness and grief. Eh, Zachary? Sorry. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating, the idea that if perfection was the criterion for entering relationships, none of us would be in any relationship. And I'm, I always marvel at the fact that we don't have that same precondition for marriage. We don't have that for a sibling relationship. We, also, we recognize our faults while we're in the relationships, or we negotiate those as we go. And that goes back to the question about why caregiving title, accepting it is somewhat important because it does invite you in a way to be different with the person that you love. If you, mm -hmm. if you resist the caregiver label, what happens is you can 
convince yourself you don't need to be different and things don't need to be renegotiated. And oftentimes, even the person that you're in, that you are uh, caring for may not be able to renegotiate. I mean, they may be incapacitated, but I'm talking about your own scripts for what should happen and what can happen and what is happening. That's the kind of negotiation and the kind of deliberation that oftentimes happens one-sided. And those are the conversations of, oh my gosh, I'm terrible at this. I'm horrendous at this. I don't want to be in this. And, you know, we oftentimes have those discussions with ourselves and by ourselves. And that's why not having the label prevents you from reaching out to people who might help give you an understanding and perspective that you alone can't get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Why do caregivers burn out? I mean, is there... Is that just they're on this path that that it's a dead end road and and that's where they all end up in this big garbage pile heap at the end of this dead end road? Is there a way to not go down that street before you reach the end? Anybody? Yeah. <laughs> don't all don't all jump in at once. <laughs> I, I I'll start and then Donna can fill in significantly here add to what I'm going to say, but I think that um, burnout is inevitable in any role or relationship in which there is no way to ascertain quality or you, there's no way to understand when you have arrived at knowing if you're good at it or not. We've all we've talked today about, I don't know if I'm good at this. Well, that's partly because there are no boundaries to this role. And, you know, the World Health Organization this year talked about the that for the first time that Workplace burnout is official. It's real. So it's been medicalized. It's real. Caregivers know that this has been the case for a long time. The only difference is that we can't check out or clock out or leave our work. Care and the impacts of care follow us in all aspects of our lives. So it rearranges and reshuffles everything. I don't think there's a way to prevent burnout because when you care for someone, you want to make them better. You want to make them more comfortable. You want to, you, you want something, you need something. So that's always going to be there. The difference is that when there are no ways of assessing yourself, you're more likely to depersonalize your own experiences. You're less likely to find joy when moments of joy can be had. You're less likely to be able to recover from things. You are more likely to minimize your own value and what you're doing and how you're being with your loved one. But Donna, uh, caregiver, uh, burnout is, is inevitable at some level, is it not? You both have experienced it, right? Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, for sure, I, I, I definitely experienced burnout. Um, and I, uh, what Zachary just said about, you know, um, depersonalizing, and um, uh, it, I do think that, um, if I, I, I would have appreciated our book a lot earlier in my own caregiving journey, because one of the things that I think I would have learned from it or been able to reframe my own experience was the idea that um, your perception of reality, it, it, it doesn't have to be fixed. For example, respite, you can have respite in the same room with your loved one. You know, I used to look after Nicholas, for example, 
all the time and thinking, oh, I'll, you know, I'll get, I'll, I'll do his tube feed, but I'll, I'll eat later. I'll put a sweater on him. I feel chilly too, but never mind me. Um, <laughs> I, I will look after him, 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 and do my own needs later. And yeah, I began to think that's how it starts. And you, and then I began to realize, I began to think of a formula that included positive self-talk in my head. So congratulating myself for every little thing that I did well, including getting across the street with a dog, a stroller, and <laughs> pushing my son's wheelchair. You know, good on me. I, <laughs> I made it across the street. So I started that self-talk. And then I also began to think about locating joy in my moment-to-moment -moment daily life with my family, not separate from them. I didn't have to wait until they go to sleep or leave the house and so that I could have what I needed. I began to think about on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, how could I um, uh, make myself a cup of tea as I got my children yeah. a drink of water? It, it, it's, a, it's a slight shift, but I began yeah. to think of myself as needing care too. There you and, go. Um, the and I began the to, yes, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. But I, I began to also say to my children, I'm going to come in the room again and you're going to say, hi, mom, how are you? And you look so pretty. <laughs> that's what you're going to say. I would laugh because my son is non-speaking. He, yeah. he does not have speech, but With he would know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I know, I know. Listen, let's take another break. Break. Let's take another break. Let's take another break. break. There we go. You know, sometimes I worry myself. All right, don't go away. We'll be right back. We are a community of caregivers that understands and supports you wherever you are in your journey. We are a place to connect with other caregivers, but more importantly, a place to get practical, actionable help. There are lots of ways for you to get support. First of all, you can download our welcome pack. This will get you started on your Thrive journey. Next, you can ask and get answers to your questions by posting them here in our private Facebook groups. You can also get live online support by attending one of our live weekly Connect webinars. You can get practical, actionable advice by listening to our weekly podcast. You can hear and read other stories about other caregivers' experiences. Plus, add your own in our weekly Share Your Story forum, posted every Tuesday in the Facebook group. You can access essential resources and download practical Thrive Solutions Packs, all of which are geared to help you thrive as a caregiver. You can get lifetime access to all of our resources. Again, we're here to support you and help you thrive and to enjoy your life as a caregiver. And remember, this is a place to get hope, not just cope. And we're back with Adrian Gruberg and Zachary White and Donna Thompson. And we're talking about their new book, The Unexpected Journey of Care, Transformation from Loved One to Caregiver. Or maybe I am not a caregiver slash through the knot. For those of you 
who, uh, <laughs> you know, want more of a slap in the face of what's going on. Well, let me see. In the next 13 or so minutes, what can we talk about? Uh, what can be the role of the community in easing the burden, right? Now, there's there's an, there's something uh, where, like Hillary said, uh, about a village, you it know. It takes uh, a village. Uh, will it take a village to get caregivers to care for each other on a community-wide basis? Are there things we can do? Good question. I'll start that's, from... That's, that's... Go ahead, Hillary. Go ahead. Go ahead. Can I call you Hillary? Go ahead, Adrian. (laughs) (laughs) Hillary. Talk about Freudian slips. uh, Corey and I are are presently working on the notion of that it takes a village and and how the community really needs to get involved. That no one is really aware of the situation unless they're in it. And it's a matter of informing people. Uh, Caregivers just don't talk about it. Uh, They're hungry not to talk about it. But it's, it's something that really needs to be addressed and for everybody to realize that it is part of life and that that slash through the knot is it's not going to be there all the time <laughs> you yeah. will be a caregiver or you'll need one <laughs> that's right yeah it's, it's yes definitely and now is the time to learn how to be a caregiver not after tragedy strikes and no you don't have time to scratch your head <laughs> Um, well, I, I am very interested. What, Adrian? Go ahead, we'll start. Sorry, with you. go ahead, Adrian. I just wanted to say I I was very fortunate um, to receive validation from my husband when I was caring for him. He let me know how much smarter he saw that found that I was, <laughs> and how capable, and how how good I was at it, and Being able to get the validation from Mm. the person that you're doing it for was so important for me. It kept kept me going. Was it sprinkled um, around the bad stuff? I mean, because I'm sure he was at times ungrateful and demanding or whatever. I don't know. Oh, he was always demanding even before (laughs) he got his diagnosis. (laughs) So you're saying just so just just he uh, became, sprinkling he salt. He became kinder. And he became kinder and yeah. more appreciative. I remember uh, all I wanted from my wife during the, that two-year grieving period was just a few crumbs. Just just let me have some crumbs off the table. I would be satisfied. I wasn't even getting crumbs. It doesn't take much. No. So that's a good question uh, we can ask. Why is the caregiver role so undervalued and misunderstood? By who? By the general public? By our care receiver? By media? By government? Oh, Otherwise, they'd government. be doing more sure. for us, wouldn't they? Nobody yeah. uses the word care or caregiver. It's, haven't heard it in politics. No. It wasn't in Obamacare, was it? No. 
I, I guess no. I do want to say something about community, though. Um, and I think that caregivers ourselves as a movement can do something to raise the value of our role. And I think that we can create us. We can create a social movement of care. And, you know, there are a lot of hidden resources in communities for for families giving care. There are so many people out there who want to be in a relationship, an authentic relationship with other people because they may be lonely or they may be uh, young. You know, children love the company of older people. Um, we need to find ways to leverage hidden resources in the community and to connect people to enable contribution, enable reciprocity, and to build community. And it can start with ourselves. And we are doing that. I mean, look at the community that collectively we four people have built online that is mm. It's extraordinary. It's millions of people. We're a community. <laughs> we are. And we have power to change the world. We have power. Yes, we do. We do. We have to and realize that. Yes, yeah. we can. We're working We've got with to each stop. other instead of looking yep. at each other like competitors. Well, like, I can't talk to them because, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, some of my caregivers might go over to them and, and my community might be diminished. <laughs> and that's how some people think in this community well, unfortunately yeah that's that's unhelpful completely <clears throat> unhelpful but i think the other thing that we have to realize is that we need to stop waiting for people with initials after their name to come into our family mm -hmm. and they're the only people who can make everything better um right. so i i want to offer the floor to others now but i've had my little rant about community i feel mm -hmm. quite strongly about it <laughs> <laughs> i think that's powerful donna and and you live it and you're right the the communities that have been created here in a part of this wonderful podcast audience i mean it's it's powerful and it's palpable and there is something in common that we all make certain assumptions about our experiences because we're the only group that can make those assumptions at some level that we don't find offense for. So there is that there is a bridge though to outsiders that we have to begin to make. And that is part right. of the project of the book to begin to create a vocabulary from the inside out, not from the outside in. Those cliches, those misunderstandings, those misperceptions about our everyday experiences hurt and harm us because they deny not simply the challenges, but also the ways of being with others that we can teach and show others that frankly, in our culture, we need, as Donna was alluding to. And so in many ways, caregiving and caregivers are antithetical. We are scary to other people because we can be in silence with someone. We walk into situations when people walk away. We recognize what it's like to feel and be powerless and yet still make connections and still make differences. We know what it's like to be interdependent. We know what it's like to face uncertainty knowing that the conclusion or the end may not be what we want, but the process is valuable because it's teaching us something, we're learning something, we're caring for someone we love. Those ideas are really radical. 
in a culture that doesn't acknowledge that. And so, uh, right. but the challenge is on us to actually craft that way of communicating value outward rather than allowing others' misperceptions to be adopted by us and used by us against one another, because that only harms us. That's yeah. my rant. <laughs> we've got uh, about five more minutes to go what can how can we wisely spend that five minutes um how can uh did we ever answer that question about how someone like me can increase their self-compassion i know i asked it but i don't remember uh <laughs> exercises uh, that i can do uh Self-compassion, yes, because I, I think I asked increasing the compassion that I have for others, and now mm-hmm. I want to ask, um, how can I increase compassion for me? Because that's that's the underlying basis of the burnout. You know, we don't put our needs first. Uh, we'll do everything. We'll give you the shirt off our back. We'll, you know, my needs when helping others hurts me was the title of a book by Carmen Berry, bestseller. And, um, you know, don't eat right, don't sleep right, don't uh, we isolate us uh, ourselves from our friends. Uh, we don't uh, bathe as often as we should. We don't uh, do a lot of things. How can we give ourselves more self-compassion? And, and this is so vitally important because most people believe that self-compassion is equal to self-care, and it's not. Because self-compassion is a way of understanding yourself and seeing yourself as others do. And I think that's really important to think about because when we only listen to ourselves and we are isolated with our caregivers, we, with the people we care for, we can be our worst critics. The self-voice, that, that, that monologue in our head Definitely. tells us things that are nasty and pernicious. And let's, let's acknowledge our self-voice never, ever, ever apologizes. We don't apologize to ourselves because it's impossible. So, Self-compassion is a byproduct of reaching out and gaining perspective about the role and situation that you're in because you listen to these people who have common care experiences that gives you permission to laugh at yourself, to give yourself a break, to know that you're not perfect, to know that you can kind of create a way of laughing at your own experiences that you would never allow for from outsiders. And so at, at the end, it just allows for mindfulness you're not labeling yourself as great or bad, perfect or imperfect, as much as seeing yourself as a human being trying to do the best you can. Right. And I think, you know, I did learn to apologize to myself because I um, I was the prime mover in making some medical decisions about surgeries for our son that ended very badly. Mm. And I, I had to forgive myself. I mean, of course, I beat myself up for years after that. Sure. Essentially, I thought I ruined his life. And I needed, I did need to apologize to myself and say to myself, um, a phrase that I found helpful personally was, um, something I read one, one time, um, uh, and it was had to do with a woman who was dying of cancer and she felt she was abandoning her her babies, her children. And her best friend said, 
you know what? Don't kick the baby. And this woman who was dying said, what? And she said, don't kick the baby. And the baby is you. You wouldn't kick a baby. And now you are, you also need care because you are working so hard in this role. You are doing your best with the information that you have today. Don't kick the baby. Don't kick yourself. And if you do, say sorry. Mm. And so for myself personally, I, I found that to be helpful. Um, there's so many reasons we can kick ourselves around the block for actions, decisions, words that are spoken um, without compassion. Um, so, yeah. Well, believe it or not, it's time to wrap it up. It's, I tell you, those hours go really, really fast. And what's yep. the best way to get a hold of uh, Donna or Zachary and or they want to buy your book or find out more about you? Right. Well, um, my website is the Caregiver's mm -hmm. Living Room. Um, www.donnathompson.com. No P in Thompson. And um, our book is available uh, online from all major booksellers um, in digital formats and in hardcover. Zachary? Yeah, um, you can find my work at The Unprepared Caregiver. And um, you can see Donna and I interacting on our Twitter presence as well as, uh, as Facebook and others. And, you know, one question that people ask is, you know, what can I do for someone that I know is going through caregiving? And, and we, our response is, if you want something to do, we would encourage you to be something. Read it, hand it, give it to someone that you care for or know about who's caregiving, mm -hmm. because it shows an attempt to understand their experiences and walk into their world. Can't think of a better gift mm. but understanding. You might just be mm -hmm. saving a life. Adrian, yeah. how do we get a hold of you? It's Adrian at thecaregiverspace.org. And the website is thecaregiverspace.org. Once you're there, all the links to social media. Okay. And uh, the Facebook communities. Well, I'm caregiverdave.com. And uh, in addition to offering three free gifts just for visiting the site, uh, tonight we're doing something special. We're having our very first Zoom uh, conference call or group chat to just really connect with the caregivers. I've sent out uh, invitations to all you people if you're able. It's at uh, 9 p.m. for 40 minutes uh, Eastern time, and I've uh, I don't know who's going to show up, who's not going to show up, how big it is, but. Uh, it's our first one, so I guess we'll find out. So if you can go, great. <laughs> if you can't, then root that we had a good time. Thank you so much, and I appreciate everything that you guys contributed so much, and uh, we'll be seeing you soon. Goodbye. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Caregiver's Caregiver radio program with Dave Nassani.